Welcome to Survive and Thrive, where Oklahomans reflect on COVID-19 and racism. Survive and Thrive is a 24-episode podcast series where our team will interview Oklahomans across a diverse spectrum as how to survive and thrive during the twofold crisis of the health and racial pandemics. Oklahomans are no stranger to tragedy. The state's history is checkered with traumas such as the Dust Bowl, Tulsa Race Massacre, Trail of Tears, and the Oklahoma City bombing. Out of those tragedies was born the Oklahoma Standard. Now, as the state once again grapples with hardship, this time with COVID-19 and racial heartache, we will hear from multiple Oklahomans who must once again learn to survive and thrive. We are your hosts, Carolee Langford and Brooklyn Wayland. We are joined by several prominent journalists today, Scott Carter, Mike Betcher, and Storm Jones. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Can we start with each of you telling a little bit about yourselves and kind of how you got to where you are today? Scott, would you like to start sure. with a little bit about sure. yourself? Uh, my name is Scott Carter, and I am a sixth-generation Oklahoman. My fourth great-grandfather was in the land run of 1893, and my family has been here ever since. I have been a journalist for 43 years, all of it in Oklahoma. And I've spent most of my time covering the state capitol. I worked for the legislature at one point. One time worked for the Speaker of the House. Another time worked for the Pro Tem of the Senate. And then covered the legislature for many years. And I now teach journalism. Storm? Yeah, I'm the, the young one of the group tonight. <laughs> uh, I graduated from Gaylord College in uh, just 2019. So I've been doing this professionally for only two years, but uh, in college had great opportunities to cover the Oklahoma congressional delegation in Washington for a semester, spent a summer uh, researching and reporting on hate groups in the country. Hmm. Uh, we covered a hurricane down in Florida for five days, Oklahomans responding to that. Professionally, since I've been getting a paycheck, we've covered civil unrest in downtown Oklahoma City, got to uh, travel to Washington for the inauguration of President Biden recently, and now I cover the Oklahoma State Capitol. Very good. And I'm Mike Betcher. I was born and raised in Ponca City, Oklahoma, way up in the northern part of the state. I am an OU alum uh, and uh, journalism, OU journalism. It wasn't called Gaylord back then, but this is my place. I came back to teach 10 years ago after leaving the state in 1980 to go to work for uh, a small cable startup news organization called Cable News Network. So it turned into something big. And in a career that spanned four decades on a network level, I worked at CNN, uh, NBC, and ABC News. Well, we're going to go ahead and kind of jump into our first topic. How are you guys kind of navigating the pandemic? What does that look like for you, both professionally and personally? Scott, if you want to start. Personally, I have spent way too much time at home. <laughs> uh, Haven't we all? Uh, my wife and kids and I have... Uh, We've gotten to know each other really, really well, <laughs> and I've played one too many games of Fortnite, but yeah, I've spent a lot of time at home. Professionally, uh, it's been a little awkward. I've been teaching students virtually, so that took a little to get used to a couple of years ago, but it, uh, it works. I still write for a living, and I live for the chance to go out and cover something on an assignment because it literally gets me out of the house and in the car and on the road. 
So it's, it's been an issue. You know, you worry about people, you worry about your family, your friends. I had uh, two of my family members got COVID and got incredibly sick. Mm. Uh, we thought my brother was going to die there for a while. Mm. And navigating that was really difficult because there's not a whole lot you can do from a distance. Yeah. But so far, we've, we've made it okay. And then Storm, what has it been like for you navigating the pandemic? Yeah, it's, it's been interesting to look back. I guess we're, we've just passed the year mark for this being in Oklahoma and right, being in the country. Yeah. And so that's been half of my professional career has been during COVID-19. That's so, kind of crazy to think about. Yeah, crazy for sure. It, just the instant like shock of like kicking everyone out of the building and we're figuring out how to work from home and doing Zoom interviews and mm. Stuff like that was just was just a kind of a learning curve for everyone. I think maybe it was easier for younger people to navigate that and figure that out. But now, as things kind of get back to normal or the new normal, I mean, I'm covering the state legislature now, and there's not you know hardly any you know the battle of talking to folks who don't think COVID is real. Therefore, mm-hmm. you know, why would we take COVID yeah. precautions against something we don't think is real? That's been interesting. Just you know, navigating your own like personal health, safety. You know, I'm gonna go spend a week at the Capitol, and then, you know, my parents are going to invite me over for dinner. Is that problematic, <laughs> yeah. you know, in my in my right. personal life? But hmm. um, it's been interesting navigating those things and just w- weighing uh, the risk versus the assignment, the job. We've got to go out in the community, and we've got to do these types of stories. The protest in downtown mm. Oklahoma City, I mean, that wasn't something we could cover via Zoom. Right. Uh, but as things get back to normal, I think, you know, I think people are looking forward to that good being in the office oh, yes. and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Absolutely. Mike, how has it been for you? Well, on a, you know, on a personal level, it's been hard because we had, uh, you know, my father-in-law who turned 96 years old today, World War II veteran, one of the few left alive. You know, we had to protect him. If he got COVID, I, you know, pretty certain it was a death sentence. So, mm. And my son, John, who's a lawyer, was going to move to Canada in Toronto where his fiance is, but she you know, is in Toronto. Travel restrictions were hard. So he's been living with us for the duration of this. And then wow. my wife and I, so we have four people in the house and, and really we had to take really extreme action to make sure we were really safe and doing everything right because, you know, I mean, not only our own lives, but his was really at stake. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of changed our lives upside down. I was the only one, and still now it's become habit, I'm the only one who goes to the grocery store. Yeah. Oh, wow. uh, we did that know. at my house too. Yeah. Just one person. So we, we, you know, we found ways around it. I think professionally, it was difficult, even though we have quickly evolved in our use of online teaching tools like Zoom. Um, I still think that that spring semester was really tough halfway through. And although I had, uh, you know, going to impersonal classes on Zoom, certainly in one respect, it made it easier. And that was just getting everyone there and in front of you. But you know, there wasn't the personal contact, which in, you know, in the job we're trying to teach, which is journalism, I think you really need that. We're a people profession. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I was happy to see that in the fall, the university was going to a hybrid mix, mostly in person. Although, and I publicly criticized 
the COVID dashboard, I think that they were purposely underestimating mm-hmm. and undercounting numbers of people who were coming down with COVID. And I think we had a COVID tracking system that was designed to be clunky, not just in this state, but in other states and the way people were counting things, mm-hmm. whether you're in New York or you're in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we made those shifts. And I think one of the things that helped me is throughout my career, I would go into places where basically civilization was falling apart. Mm-hmm. So that sort of thing didn't scare me. I mean, it scared me about my own country. What was going to happen? You know, was the economy going to bottom out for years? And in the midst of it, you had political crises. And, you know, it's stuff I'd seen in countries that were unraveling. And now you kind of felt like your own country was unraveling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel mentally I was better, better prepared for it. And I, I thought often about people haven't had to live through that sort of thing. The uncertainty and the fear that must be felt, which is very understandable about mm-hmm. what this all meant, frankly. Mm-hmm. Now, this may be our first pandemic that we're all dealing with in our lifetimes, but Oklahoma has really just seen a lot of heartache, uh, a lot of tragedies throughout its history, whether that be the Trail of Tears, uh, the Tulsa Race Massacre, Dust Bowl, Oklahoma City bombing, tornado after tornado. How do you think that these tragedies and heartaches have kind of shaped the people of Oklahoma? Well, I, you know, I really think the formative event in this state's history that really shaped the character of the state was the Dust Bowl and and Steinbeck's novel, The Grapes of Wrath. Mm -hmm. I've always felt, and and I, you know, I grew up in a part of the state that was really hit hard by the Dust Bowl. The whole state was, but, you know, uh, north central Oklahoma, west northwestern Oklahoma, that was that was tough. There's a lot of farming going on up there, and it was totally a disaster for people in that in in Oklahoma, and particularly in that part of the state. My mother and father lived through it, and then when the book, uh, when the novel came out, Grapes of Wrath, and then there was a film. Uh, I think Oklahoma suffered from an inferiority complex, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of Oklahoma's character. Uh, is built around trying to show that we can do anything anybody else can. And when there are events, let's say like the handling of the Oklahoma City bombing, Mm -hmm. uh, and people react that well to the bombing as they did, it became known as the Oklahoma Standard. Oklahoma's going to grapple on to that. Oh, yeah. It showed the nation that we as Oklahomans can come together and and help each other when when we have to. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's always been, I don't know what you guys think, but my feeling was growing up with people who survived the Dust Bowl that that was the most formative event in the state's character, I think. Hmm. I would agree with you to the point that I do think it left an indelible mark on our character. And I would agree that, yeah, Oklahomans have something to prove. But the other side of that is, and you, you talk about the Dust Bowl. The other side of that is they don't like to talk about it. When I was a kid, they didn't teach the Dust Bowl in high school. They didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to talk about the Grapes of Wrath. We weren't, you could not find Steinbeck in my school library. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until uh, the mid 80s or so that Woody Guthrie's picture was hung at the state capitol. Uh, he was considered a he was labeled a communist by the Daily Oklahoman before that, and so 
He wasn't, even though he was a wildly famous native son, he wasn't going to talk about it. Yeah. Um, I think that's the other side of that is we're resilient and we're strong and there are times we really rise to the occasion, but we don't want to talk about it. Yeah, no, there, there is that. I, I, would, I would grant you that as well. I mean, yeah, you know, I, I had to really kind of pry it out of my mom and dad about how it was during the, the Depression and Dust Bowl, the double whammy going on. Yeah. You got to remember, too, and it was interesting because I was covering the state capitol around the time this was all occurring many, many years ago, almost a half or more than a half century ago, I guess. Well, about a half century ago. The term Okie was a racial slur. That's what they called the race, quote unquote, of people from Oklahoma and the Dust Bowl affected states mm-hmm. who, who headed west to California. They weren't even allowed, they had highway patrolmen blocking the borders. You talk about blocking the borders now, California was closed to Okie, so they tried to keep them out. Mm-hmm. They were just struggling to find a better place to, to live. They were refugees inside the United States. And the word Okie was used to refer to them as that, and it was a, it was a, considered a racial slur by many of those people who, who, who fled. And in the 1970s, Governor Dewey Bartlett determined that we're going to try to own that name and make it uh, something to be proud of. And that's, that, was, that was a bit of a turning point, you know. I uh, have an oaky pin. Yeah, the old <laughs> yeah, oaky pin. I have an oaky pin. Yeah. And, and so now we weren't supposed to not read about it. We were supposed to well, maybe not consider where that name came from, but now they're all Okies. It's been, you know, it was a half century since the Dust Bowl. We can grab that. You think that Merle name. Haggard helped push back on that? Yeah, I think Merle Haggard I th- I helped. Think that song I actually did got a lot. to know him later on, actually. I, I think that song actually helped reframe the definition of Okie. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. I actually ended up doing a profile on him years later in the 90s. and. He taught, I mean, he really loved Oklahoma and Oklahomans, uh, Merle did, he, you know, felt that attachment. <laughs> but, I mean, we ought to hear from Storm. <laughs> I think the thing that I was thinking of is like all of these experiences and the intersectionality of them, like when they come together, whether it be like repeat, what do we want to call them, traumas or whatever mm-hmm. that the states endured, or just like holding two things in your mind at once, like my fifth great-grandfather was a child, uh, as a child came in on the Trail of Tears to eastern Oklahoma, or was in Oklahoma then. But then on the other side of my family, fifth great-grandfather participated in the land run. And mm-hmm. we still have the Centennial Farm near Kingfisher today. So the, like those ideas you know, that have formed us uh, as Oklahomans aren't silos, right? I mean, it, it's kind of messy. Yeah. Messy is a good way to describe it. Yeah, yeah. 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 that's a good point. Messy. I mean, you have a foot in both worlds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean... You know, we have these social conversations about, you know, uh, boomer and sooner and in, in the land run. We have difficult conversations about the land run, but that's like part of my family yeah. in more than one way. I guess talking about it, addressing it, understanding what happened. Yeah, I mean, and, I came from the land run part of the state, too. And, you know, well, there's like five land runs. So most yeah, of the state well, you're was right. at one point a land run. I come from the Cherokee Strip yep. land run. Now, that was a fun, that's that where my family's fun. from. That's the fun land run. <laughs> the fun land run, okay. So, and throughout this podcast, we have, and you mentioned it earlier, talking about the Oklahoma standard, but we, we have addressed that. We've been talking about the Oklahoma standard mm-hmm. and being Oklahoma strong. So, 
What does that mean to you? I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I, I think, and we're not the only other state that does this, Every state tends to glom on to something because you had Boston strong as well. Right. Mm. I, I think it's more of, you know, certainly we have our character. I think the defining character is the American character because you find people reacting to difficult circumstances all over the country. And it's almost for your own people to feel proud of themselves in the state saying, you know, the Oklahoma Standard or Oklahoma Strong. They're saying the same thing in Massachusetts and, you know, say things around the country. You said something about not living in a silo. Every tragic event that we've had, the bombing, tornadoes, whatever has happened, people from all across the country pony up and come down to Oklahoma to help. And Oklahomans go to other states to help. So it's not something that's just us. It's I, I think it's you're right. It's an American trait that you most of the time you put your differences aside and roll up your sleeves and help someone who's suffering so it's not i just don't think it's inherent to oklahoma we do a lot of things right but there are places we also fail miserably but i i i do think uh there is the character that we have we have something more to prove i look we're sitting a few hundred feet away here from the Palace on the Prairie, the University of Oklahoma football team. Mm -hmm. That team, the whole idea to create a program that was so strong that, that began with Bud Wilkinson and, and became, made, put Oklahoma's name on the map in a, in a good way, that was all about, to me, that was all about that inferiority complex I was talking about. And, you know, we, we need to have something everyone in the state can can get around and certainly Sooner football is that thing. I mean, not only is it a branding for this university, it's a branding for the entire state and has been for generations now. Mm -hmm. And it, it was one of those things to show we're not the Dust Bowl, we're not the disaster state as it's been called before. We've got, you know, we got things going on here. And certainly I think Oklahoma City really adopted that sort of stance because I mean, you know, I can remember when I left here uh, in 1980, I mean, you could roll a bowling ball down downtown Oklahoma City and, and hit no one. And I think the whole thing about renewal in Oklahoma City and all these, that bigger than life Devon building and all those things and the basketball team, we, we are a state that likes symbols that show our resiliency, whether it's the thunder or bragging on maps and, and the uh, rejuvenation of downtown Oklahoma City, mm -hmm. or our reaction to the Oklahoma City bombing. I feel like I'm talking all around the issue. I, I've always tried to put my finger on that, but I've always argued that we try harder, I think, is a, is a trait. I think as Okies, we do try harder to show that we're as good as anyone else on, on the East Coast or the West Coast. Hmm. So why do you think that Oklahomans feel like they have to push a little bit harder? But I just think there's that mentality, whether we get it or not, that's going back. I mean, you have to have talked to people who lived through the Dust Bowl. And that, again, that's why I go back to that, that that was a defining moment. <laughs> and that term, Oki, was a, was a slur. And, and probably not defining that, you know, back then it was considered, I've heard, I've had Okies you know, in my part of the state that grew up that, that talked about that. 
they felt it was a, they called it a racial slur, and that's why I use it now. I mean, it's just a plain old slur. You know, it's, it was citizens of a state or a region, and Okies included folks from Western Kansas and the Panhandle of Texas and other things. They were all Okies. They were lumped under that one big label of of refugees, and and I think that that refugee state we were in during a massive years-long disaster, I think really formed that will that's been passed on from generations, I believe, to really, that person's working eight hours, I'm gonna have to work nine. <laughs> I think I really, I've seen that a lot in Okies who have left the state and have done well who were out there. I see it in the character of the Okies that are here. It's a hard, you know, it's a hard-working state. Mm-hmm. But is, was that in existence before the Dust Bowl? I mean, we were founded kind of as a state of refugees. They, yeah, you know, you, they brought the True. tribes over and said, "We're going to give you all this land," and then they discovered oil on it and added white settlements. So we had imports from all over the country that came here and settled. So was some of that inferiority there in 1889 that and I think it just it was got more amplified? Of a uh, yeah, I mean, but you're right. I mean, it was like, you know, it was, I mean, it wasn't the cream of the crop that was making the land run. No, no, there were some, <laughs> there were some pretty sketchy people that, that, that yeah, that I mean, settled. Yeah. But I mean, these my were people. My family included. So. The, yeah, no, my family too. I mean, yeah. these were people who were having problems making it in other more developed par- parts of America that were looking for new opportunity and heard about free land, you know, yep. and decided to give it a try doesn't mean they weren't any smarter or than than the people in their area. They, they were just, just willing to take the risk. They were willing well, yeah, they, they were that. I mean what's what's it like in your family talking about that? Oh, well I was thinking how this, you know, uh, can do attitude uh, and state pride translates to like people my age. And sometimes, you know, anyone you talk to, the next generation's always the worst generation that there's ever gonna be, right? <laughs> yeah. But sure I wonder if maybe Mike mentioned earlier, like maps, um, the maps projects in Oklahoma City. If you know, showing the world we can pull together and we can build the biggest convention center, or we mm-hmm. can, we can do all this to to compete by coming together. You know, uh, pitching efforts in, and I wonder if that's maybe how we, um, people my age or, or younger folks, try to show that we're something by mm-hmm. passing these sales tax and building these wonderful big buildings. But I do think it's different. I mean, I don't know that, you know, well, social media is not representative of like life. But, you know, there's a lot of, I don't know, so, sometimes I feel like people, are def- there's not as much state pride, maybe is what, I, what I'm trying to say. Which isn't that we need to say our state's like rah-rah, the best state ever. I mean, certainly right. there's, there's tons of issues. And, and oh, yeah. I think we've still got a lot to overcome. But I, I think probably people your generation are better about their more willing to take some of those risks. And I, I think that's a good thing. I think they've contributed a lot. A young, it was a younger mayor that pushed originally for the maps. Uh, you know, other mayors had the opportunity, they didn't do it. But Ron Norick led the charge and mm-hmm. got maps done and revitalized Bricktown. And it was literally sheer force and political will that pulled that off. So yeah, I think the younger generations contributed a lot. So would you say that this idea of like, I can do it, I I can make my time worthwhile in Oklahoma, do you think that will continue just in different phases, kind of like Storm was talking about? Yeah. I mean, the only place we have to go is up. What else, what else is there? You don't, 
if you fail, if Oklahoma fails, then that's the center of the country. It's not a good thing for the rest of the country. We've, we've got resilient, articulate, smart people here. And I think as they go, so goes the rest of the nation. You know, the trauma, it wasn't like, you know, the interesting thing, going back to the Dust Bowl again, it wasn't like a tornado. It comes through, it's huge, like the more tornado, which I followed going through more, shooting it for ABC. And, and massive disaster, that was the most recent one, and the one before I covered for CNN, uh, the one that was in 99, May 3rd tornado. And, you know, I think that the Dust Bowl, it was kind of, in a way, kind of like the pandemic. It was unrelenting. Mm-hmm. Like in a tornado, it's very defined. The damage occurs. People uh, vow to rebuild. They rebuild. Life begins anew. Right. The dust bowl. There was storm. I had there was storm after storm after storm of just dust. And I, and I always try to imagine what it was. And then one day when I was covering the Capitol in the later in the 1970s or mid 1970s, and the press room was on the west end of the building. I remember looking out the window. We were, had been in a drought, and this. I hadn't seen anything like it in my life. It was a black wall, churning black wall moving. And I thought, that is the Dust Bowl. And that was a one-off thing. But it, I mean, it was all-consuming. I mean, you see, you've, it's the scariest thing you'll ever see, a black wall of roiling clouds coming at you full of dust. Mm-hmm. And then it passed through. Back in the 70s, that was it. Back in the day of the Dust Bowl, it was day after day after day after day for a long period of time. I think it's, I think it's just interesting hearing like how formative you, you both like feel that that was in our state history for, you know, uh, our, our parents and grandparents. But I don't know that my generation or people my age know much about the Dust Bowl. Yeah. What, did you um, study it in school? Did they, did they have it in your history? We don't, don't, we don't study it like it should be studied. Yeah, no, I don't remember in the but, Oklahoma history. But how does that affect People my age, our perception of the state is, is does well, that, that's certainly ingrained somewhere back here in the way we were raised and the way our grandparents raised our family. But This is what I meant when I said we don't like to talk about yeah. it because there are, there are many components in our history. Go back to the run of 89 and the founding of the capital, the moving of the capital, all that. The, the all, thievery of the capital. The thievery of the capital. <laughs> From exactly. Guthrie to Oklahoma City. All those, and, and we don't talk about them. We don't teach them like they should be taught. And th- it's wrong because there's a lot more to that history than is ever told. The, one of the problems with the Dust Bowl was really poor farming techniques. Mm-hmm. And over, oh, you know, just exploiting land till the point where the topsoil was non-existent. And we don't talk about that. We don't talk about how they wasted water from aquifers and how just the really poor agricultural techniques that are involved at the time. But what does not talking about that, like what effect does that have on the state and our mentality? You're the example of that. You're sitting here going, I wish I knew more about it. That's mm-hmm. the effect. And that's a problem. But I'm, I'm curious about what, okay, your generation, Storm, do you mind if I ask Storm Sure, sure, please. You're on the spot now. Oh, boy. Yeah, no, so what, what is formative in your mind about your view of your home and where you Yeah, grew up? that's a good question. Well, I think for me, the, uh, obviously the, 
the Oklahoma City bombing is going to be much more fresh. I mean, parents live through that. I remember my grandparents recording the evening news. I, I watched over a weekend on an anniversary. Maybe I was five or six years old. My grandparents sat down. And we That's probably traumatic for a five or six-year-old. Yep. <laughs> but we watched the VHS tapes of the coverage uh, of the Murrow building in downtown Oklahoma City. So that's much more fresh, I think. Um, and I wasn't alive for that. So, I mean, I think we have a lot of state pride or we, 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 we relate to that or we understand that. We can go to the museum, Memorial Museum. There's tactile things we can see and understand yeah. and get a sense of what it was like maybe and take pride in that still. I don't know. I mean, I, I mm-hmm. see your point. We, we didn't do monuments to the survivors of the Dust Bowl. Right. We didn't build the museum display to the people that lived through the Depression or survived the yeah, tornado. Yeah. It's a good point. It's we gave you something to acknowledge, something tactile to see with the bombing. That makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. And I think, yeah, probably the the most recent monument, if you could call it that, to it is Ken Burns' documentary he did on the Dust Bowl mm-hmm. uh, and choosing that subject. There's a reason he chose that subject because it was so much trauma. But in your generation, I, the bombing would be a defining uh, moment. I do think, though, I mean, a lot of it goes back to just teaching the stuff, right? I mean, if you never have heard about it, and and it's interesting because there are things, there are stains on our state, the Tulsa Race Massacre, that should be taught that aren't out of some, you know, embarrassment maybe or or not. But but there's other things that are no fault of our own that we just ignore. We didn't, they didn't talk about it growing up. Yeah, we've talked about it. We never learned about it in school. And I grew up 30 minutes from Tulsa. I have several friends from Tulsa, and it was, it was whispered about. It was never discussed in school. Mm-hmm. And it depends on what race you were on how it was discussed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to Survive and Thrive. Make sure to join us next week for part two of this episode. You can find us anywhere you listen to your podcast by searching Survive in OKLA. We are your hosts, Carolee and Brooklyn. Join us every Wednesday for new episodes. Also participating in this podcast project are Kimberly Burke, our manager, Jesse Smith, researcher and writer, Ji Xuan Fan, the social media coordinator, and Miranda Von Dale, our audio engineer. This podcast is presented by Gaylord News in collaboration with the Institute for the Study of Human Flourishing. Mm-hmm.